Ladies and gentlemen, it is now time for the lunch dialogue. We would like to welcome our speaker for this lunch dialogue, Mr. Tio Chi Hien, Deputy Prime Minister and Coordinating Minister for National Security. Well, good afternoon, everyone. I thank you for inviting me to join your discussion today. I was listening from the back a little bit earlier just now to get a sneak preview of what you've been discussing, and I see that you've been having a very lively and interesting discussion. Um, allow me to add some of my thoughts uh, on the subject. I've entitled it, Aging with Vigor. Now, I look after population in Singapore, and uh, we've spent a lot of time on marriage and procreation, immigration and so on. But I think we also need to look at this whole issue of how we as a society respond to ageing. Now, it's a slightly almost whimsical look at ageing. So let me start. Uh, we, have, we are now living much longer than before. Uh, last, end of last year, I turned 63. Uh, when I was born in the 1950s, the expected lifespan was around 61 years. So you can do the math. <laughs> so for those around my age today, however, who are now, say, around 65, we can actually expect to live another 21 years. So did the population uh, analysts get it wrong in the 1950s when they said that you know, the expected lifespan is only 61. Well, these additional years of life are really a bonus received from the investments that we have made in sanitation, healthcare, good housing, and a good, clean, safe and secure living environment. So our children born today can expect to live up to around 83 years old. So that's what we expect today. <clears throat> but with improvements in the biomedical sciences, I can only guess at how many more bonus years they might have by the time they are in their 60s or 70s. Greater longevity is a bonus if we are well prepared for it. We can age with vigour if each one of us prepares himself or herself well, if we prepare ourselves well in our communities, and if all of us together as a nation are well prepared. Let me run quickly through some numbers. I think they're familiar to many of you. We are entering a phase where the number of seniors is increasing rapidly. The baby boomers, me included, are coming into our senior years. Today, we have about 500,000 seniors aged 65 and above. By 2030, this will about double to around 900,000. But the number of citizens aged 80 and above will also more than double from around 100,000 today to around 200,000 by 2030. And in fact, our citizens age 80 and above are one of the fastest growing segments in our population. Baby boomers, like myself, and I think looking around the room, there are quite a few of us in this generation, are used to being born in fairly large cohorts, 50 to 60,000. Whereas the cohorts today are almost half that around 32,000 births a year. Even though in the last three, four years, we've had a higher marriage, 
and births among citizens than we have had in the previous decade. The UN has described population ageing as one of the defining features of our times. Countries are seeing populations age at an unprecedented rate. And the level of ageing will differ. In Singapore today, there are about 4.4 adults aged 20 to 64, so roughly what we would conventionally call working age, to every senior age 65 and above. In Europe, it's about 3.0, Japan, 2.0. The sale of the number of adult diapers sold in Japan surpassed the number of baby diapers sold in 2011. Now just think about that. And babies use diapers only for a relatively short period of time. Singapore will hit Europe's current levels of ageing around 2020 and Japan's current levels by around 2040. But we are also ageing much more rapidly than other countries. It took France over 100 years to transit from an ageing society, which by some demographers' definitions is 7% of the population, so an ageing society, to an aged society with 14% of the population aged above 65. So France took more than 100 years. It has taken us only 19 years, and we crossed that mark last year. But on the positive side, we are actually much better prepared than others. The need to prepare for an ageing population could already be seen by the mid-1980s. Life expectancy was increasing, and the baby boomers, us, had already been born. However, in the mid-1980s, I think many people might not have been ready to think that far ahead and contemplate the range of measures that were needed to deal with this situation. Nevertheless, we were able to take several measures early to set in place resilient institutions that are built upon strong foundations and principles. And these have now put us in a better position to look after ourselves and as a society as we age. Now, one such pillar is the Central Provident Fund, which helps Singaporeans to save for their old age, cover medical expenses, purchase basic health insurance. Now, this is a fully funded system and will be sustainable for generations to come. This is a fundamental difference and a fundamental strength. In many other countries, pension promises are not fully funded and pension payments have to be met from current government budgets, placing a great strain on the current working generation. But the CPF system, as it was operating, was not good enough and it was improved significantly in 2009 with the introduction of CPF Life. CPF Life provides lifelong payments, payouts, for future cohorts of seniors by pooling together our longevity risk. In this way, our seniors are assured of monthly payments for as long as we live. Compared to the previous CPF system, where seniors got a fixed amount, but risk living beyond the time when their own CPF retirement accounts ran out. So if you live too long, your payouts, your monthly payouts would have run your account down, and then when you're really, really very, very senior, you don't get any more payouts. And that's a very frightening thing, frightening position to be in. And CPF Life deals with that. 
And for those unable to save enough by themselves, we have targeted assistance, such as through housing grants, workfare and silver support. Now for healthcare, we have MediShield Life today, which provides lifelong universal health insurance coverage for all. So lifelong, universal, for all. Introduced in 2015, MediShield Life made a significant improvement over the earlier MediShield, which only provided health insurance coverage up to the age of 92 on an opt-out basis. And MediShield also did not cover pre-existing conditions. So MediShield Life deals with these three fundamental shortcomings of the old MediShield. And MediShield Life now means that seniors need not worry about not qualifying for health insurance due to pre-existing conditions or, again, living beyond the age when they can get health insurance. So with the old CPF and the old MediShield, once you get beyond a certain age, you begin to worry, am I going to live too long? Because then I can't get insurance coverage and my payouts from my retirement account may run out. But MediShield life and CPF life, living longer is a blessing. The introduction of CPF life and MediShield life are therefore game changers. These national social risk pooling schemes mean that to a larger extent than before, we are all helping one another to cope better together with the uncertainties associated with ageing. So with this national risk pooling, we are not facing ageing alone. We are facing ageing together and we have pooled our risk of longevity together. Our healthcare expenditure to look after our seniors actually comes from three sources. Sharing risk collectively through MediShield Life, our own MediSafe accounts and, of course, cash payments, but also very significant subsidies from government to hospitals and polyclinics for subsidised healthcare, such as in our B2 and C wards. The doubling of our population of seniors by 2030 means that the subsidies that we provide from our government budget for healthcare will grow very substantially. Even if we assume that doctors and nurses have no more pay rises in the coming years, some doctors in the room may feel quite uh, aggrieved by that, and if our medical system uses exactly the same drugs and exactly the same cost as today. Just the doubling of the seniors means that this, what we need to support the healthcare system with from our budget will increase dramatically. Today, the largest expenditure item in our government budget is defence. That's the bar on the left. Followed by education and health. And health today is around 2.4% of GDP. This is already a significant increase from 2007 when health was just around 0.8% of GDP. That was when there were about 300,000 Singaporeans over the age of 65. Today we have about 500. By 2030, we will have 900,000 over the age of 65. So as a percentage of GDP, this was a three-fold increase 
in expenditure from the government budget. And we could expect that health expenditure may overtake education in our government budget in the coming years. And we will have to make sure that our budget remains on a sound footing so that we have the resources to take care of our seniors as they age and to make sure that we help our children take care of us. These measures, CPF life, MediShield life and a sound government budget sufficient to fund our current health care needs have put us on a firmer footing than many other countries. But we do still need to be careful that we maintain that sound foundation, those sound principles that have given us this firm footing as we develop policies for the future. What our past generations have done for us, these bonus years which I and those in my generation enjoy, to place all of us as a nation on a firmer footing to age with confidence and vigour, we must also continue to build on for future generations. I think that is our responsibility. So I've just outlined what all of us can do together at the national level. But we also have to take ownership for what we can do collectively in our communities and what we can do as individuals to support our families and ourselves to age with vigour. It's not just something for the government to do and something for the government to take care of. We need to do it in our community, we need to do it ourselves and in our families. As a community, we can all play our part to enable our seniors to embrace the opportunities that come from longevity and live life to the full. For example, we have initiatives to enable those who want to work to stay in work longer. We raised the re-employment age from 65 to 67 from July last year. Alongside this, we have introduced the Special Employment Credit, which helps companies to pay part of the wages of workers aged 55 and above, earning up to $4,000 a month. And this today benefits about 340,000 workers and helps us to achieve a high rate of employment of workers between the age 55 to 64. And we are around about 67.3% now. And this is comparable to the levels in Germany and Denmark. But I think we can still do better. There are also grants to enable our companies to redesign workplaces and jobs. But these grants and credits are meaningful only when employers value and tap on the experience and skills our seniors can offer. Our seniors, too, have to do their part to keep up with new skills required in the workplace, make themselves relevant, useful, value-adding. SkillsFuture and other programs are targeted at this. And we can also redesign jobs to have more flexible work arrangements so that there's part-time work, job sharing, and working from home. Technology offers so many opportunities. So for those of you in particular from the private sector here today, this message is for you too. The gig economy, often talked of as something for millennials and so on, is not just for the millennials, because if we redesign jobs to be more flexible, seniors are one of the large groups that can take part in this gig economy as well. So only through a changed mindset, 
and a concerted effort can we help make it possible for seniors to remain in the workforce for as long as they're able and willing to do so. So I visited Changi Airport and SATS recently. Uh, I met Dolly. Um, Dolly was quite happy to keep her eye on me and follow me around. Now, Dolly is an automated guided vehicle for food delivery. Our workers no longer have to push heavy trolleys weighing up to 200 kilograms. But they found that they, they, it's useful still to have a person because when you have a completely automated trolley, the passengers like to play games with the trolley, <laughs> see whether it will stop, divert, and things like that. And Dolly may end up taking a lot longer to get to where she needs to go to than if somebody sort of... <laughs> If, if Dolly is following someone. <laughs> the Singapore Public Service is also doing its part. As at December 2016, we have close to 3,000 public officers now, aged 65 and above. And this is up from 500 in 2010. These officers continue to contribute well. In fact, our oldest serving public officer, Mr. Pute bin Mahmud, from the Elections Department, is 84 years old and first joined 70 years ago in 1947. So when I met him, I shook his hand. I said, so how many years have you worked? He said, 70. So I said, no, no, not how old are you, but how many years have you worked? He said, yeah, 70. <laughs> so, <laughs> and he's still in good health. So within our communities, there is also much that we can do to build community spirit and look out for one another. The Japanese are very good at this. Japan is well known for having very strong community-based support. These younger seniors in the Nippon Active Life Club in Osaka help to take care of senior seniors, enabling them to continue to live in their own homes instead of moving to assisted care facilities. These younger seniors are paying it forward. And we can always stay young at heart, keep ourselves active and vigorous, and encourage others to join in and do so too. This is one of my pastor's residents, uh, Uncle Chong. He's the gentleman sitting in front. And he's 90 years old. He continues to conduct weekly swimming lessons for other seniors encouraging them to remain active and fit, even in their advanced years. The lady uh, standing to my left used to run the canteen when Changi Airport was being built, and uh, she cooked single-handedly for all of us, marketing, slicing, cooking, everything. So they remain active and support each other. In 2016, we started the Community Networks for Seniors, CNS, to develop strong community-based support to complement family support. The community network reaches out to seniors to support them to age well in place. So CNS coordinates the efforts across government agencies, VWOs and grassroots organisations to bring senior-centric programmes and services to their doorstep. And volunteers such as our Pioneer Generation Ambassadors and grassroots leaders encourage our seniors to attend health screening and talks, as well as exercises and social interest groups. And we are also matching seniors living alone to befrienders and neighbours 
who can help them. Seniors living alone is another rapidly growing segment of our population. The goal is to build a close-knit community in our neighbourhoods where our seniors can age happily, healthily and actively in place. To promote intergenerational bonding, we are also co-locating childcare and elder care facilities. The first such site is at Kampong Admiralty, where a childcare centre and active ageing hub are located side by side. Over the next 10 years, we will extend this to some 10 new HDB housing precincts. Finally, as individuals and as families, we also have to do our part to support our senior family members to age well and enjoy their silver years. The warm embrace of families play an important role too to provide meaning to life, support, mutual love and care. The government recognises this and in fact our policies are designed to encourage family members to help one another and to live close to one another. We encourage children to live together or close together with their parents by giving priority for housing and grants. We have special incentives to encourage individuals to top up the CPF accounts of loved ones. Our tax policies encourage intergenerational support through parent relief and grandparent caregiver relief. In addition, we need to rethink our own individual approach to life and ageing so that we can all lead long, happy, healthy and purposeful lives. Lifelong learning to acquire new skills, keeping active through work and exercise, finding meaning through community and voluntary work, and fulfilment with our families. Living longer does not mean being old for longer. It means staying young for longer. So we need to keep fit, keep learning, and keep contributing. When I was 29, 30 years old, I thought that if I can keep running and jogging when I'm in the 50s, that would be fine. Today I'm in my 60s and I can still do it and I hope to continue doing it for as long as possible. It's the approach and the attitude that you take. So instead of merely adding years to life, we should be adding life to years. I want to introduce to you Mr. Quack. Uh, he did a yoga headstand after joining other residents, other of my residents, to give feedback at a session organised by REACH at the Pasiris Neighbourhood Centre. He's 71 years old. So actually I was ribbing him that day because he was using one of these mobility devices. So I said, Mr. Quack, you're so fit. How come you're riding one of these? He says, no, no, I'm still very fit. Let me show you. So he did a headstand for me. <laughs> so in a way, what we do need is a mindset change in the way we think about ageing. In a sense, to stand the whole way we think about ageing on its head. We need a collective commitment at all levels. What can I and my family do? What can we do in our communities and workplaces? And what can we all do together as a nation to prepare ourselves? Our pioneers laid a strong foundation for us. Each one of us and our families, businesses, employers, our community 
need to shift toward a notion of aging with vigor. To live a full life and life to the full and create a vibrant and vigorous Singapore for all ages. I look forward to having a good discussion with you, uh, uh, Singaporeans and friends of all ages. Thank you very much. Um, I should begin um, in the interest of transparency with a confession. Um, and since I happen to have worked with the newspaper that Heng Chi criticized, I shouldn't mind admitting my age, um, which is 63, the same age as our distinguished guest of honor. And as you heard, he still runs and is a fine specimen of active aging. I'm not so fine a specimen. I'm glad <laughs> I can still walk. DPM, <laughs> uh, um, um, let me begin by asking you a question before turning it to the, uh, to the floor. Um, never before in human history, I mean, as you pointed out, aging is not uh, um, unique. An aging society is not unique to Singapore. Never before in human history um, have there been so many people above the age of 65, um, above the age of 80. Um, and uh, uh, you spoke eloquently of how um, aging need not be um, a, a, a crippling experience, um, that you know, aging means that one can stay younger, longer. Um, but um, economically, what we, ha what we have, uh, most, we are most conscious of are the costs of aging. As you pointed out, um, um, the healthcare expenditure will grow tremendously. Um, um, soon, it may well be, um, uh, be, be, as a government, we may well be spending more on healthcare than we would uh, on defense, uh, which means exceeding perhaps 3.6% of GDP. Um, is there anything beyond gloom and doom, speaking economically, where an aging population is concerned? Are there any economic benefits that one can see in an aging population? Well, I think if you take a narrow view, if you are providing services for the aged, like Unicharm or something, as I said, their sales have gone up. They produce diapers. But whether we can benefit from an aging population, I said, depends on our approach to it. I have asked my civil servants, I told PSD, think you know, if you're, if you're trying to recruit people and trying to bring people into the civil service, the fastest growing segment from which you can get people is from the seniors. And if you can redesign your workplaces and your jobs and the way you employ people, actually, you can do a lot more. But the inertia is very, very high. And so we have to push you in the private sector, I would encourage you to do so as well. Some companies do it better than others. And we can solve you know, at both ends of the problem at the same time. So we have, say, young parents who really don't want to work at full tilt because they have young children. Maybe you have seniors who don't want to work at full tilt because they have grandchildren or want to have a slower pace of life. Supposing you are able to twin a job between a young parent and a senior, and they share a job. You have 
combination of youth and experience. And they might well make a very good partnership for some jobs. But I think we need to have more creative ways of dealing with this. Now, if we can do this, then we can tap on the knowledge and energy and they can, the seniors can be contributing members to the economy for a long, long time and not become a sort of drag on the economy. So this is one way we can do this. And they can make their retirement uh, nest egg last a lot longer. And it will stay active and healthy for a lot longer. So I think there are things that we can do. Thank you. Um, we have about 30 minutes um, for this dialogue with uh, DPM. Um, there are mics all over the, the floor. If you could come up, keep your comments short and move on. I don't think you need to answer immediately. We'll see uh, how it goes um, to every one question, but uh, we'll gather them maybe by two, in, two or three, and then we, you, can have a, you can respond. So, we, okay. Is the first person? Okay, Paul. Thanks very much. Um, I was hoping I wouldn't have to be the first one. <laughs> Um, DPM, thanks very much for your um, sharing. Uh, I was particularly heartened that you highlighted uh, MediShield Life because um, I want to acknowledge that uh, the coverage of pre-existing conditions is really a huge uh, uh, improvement on uh, previous uh, uh, schemes that were put in place because it recognizes that individuals are born with congenital illnesses or certain genetic predispositions, uh, and so that's beyond their control. The problem, however, is that MediShield Life is still designed as a catastrophic insurance coverage. So the deductible is relatively high, the co-payments exist, and there are annual and uh, lifetime caps. So the result of that has been, according to the MOH website, that MediShield Life only paid out $745 million in 2016, while it took in $1.8 billion. Uh, and as one of the speakers pointed out earlier in this session, uh, Singapore's total health expenditure is 4.9% of GDP, which works out to about $20 billion. So even though the government has increased its expenditure to about 8%, uh, $8 billion, there's still a gap of more than half of the total health expenditure, which is paid by the individual or the employer or private insurance, which is very difficult to sustain. As again, somebody else pointed out, Singapore is one of the fastest rising healthcare inflation rates. So the question is, would it be possible to expand MediShield Life to go beyond the catastrophic uh, coverage to reduce uh, some of the deductibles and co-payments so that people can be reassured, not just of catastrophic illness, but of, of regular uh, uh, important medical conditions. Thank you. Okay, do you want to take this first before moving on? Okay, we can have another question before we have DPM answer. Yes. Thank you. Good afternoon, DPM. My name is Emily Tan. Um, my question is regarding the we talk quite a lot about having immigrants address the issue of not enough young to support the old. I have not heard about the public discourse about a big demographic fact in Singapore. I read with interest the population brief in 2017 that over one third of the marriages in Singapore is between a Singaporean and a foreigner. And if you look at the trends, it has been the case for over 10 years, which seems to suggest that over one third of our population, and in certain years it's over 40%, so more than one-third of our children, at some point, need to decide whether they will stay in Singapore or not because we're not allowed to do citizenship. What I would like to ask is, what is the government policy or thinking regarding 
reducing or preventing the drain of our young who are dual nationalities or parents of different um, nationalities. And is, uh, is dual citizenship something you will consider for this special group? Because after all, we can't choose who our parents are or where they come from. Or is there a policy to enable these people to come back and contribute to Singapore's economy in some form, or to come back and take care of their parents as they age? Thank you. Okay. Uh, we'll take one more question. Yeah. Um, I'm, is that okay? Yeah. Yes, go ahead. Yeah, I'm Joyce Lai from Kampong Senang Charity and Education Foundation. We, we are a small charity, we run six centres. One of the centres is to take care of people who are suffering from chronic illnesses. I'm a bit concerned about, from our small statistics, of course cannot be a national uh, statistic representation. Now, out of the 2,000 over chronic illness patients registered with us, actually 42% are from people below 50 years old. So it is not the... It is not the aging community that are not well enough, but also our working population are not well enough. So I was thinking beyond the job redesign, maybe we also have to look into the education uh, content redesign to teach people how to uh, take care of themselves since young. Because the, um, the value of our education now is molding the future for Singapore. And uh, if we only mold the economic aspect, but not the mental uh, wellness and physical wellness aspect, how can we expect the future aging community to be contributing more to the society if they are not well? So uh, it's just my concern, so I just raise it. The other aspect is for the aging who are already pay for their mortgage and willing to uh, contribute back to the community. I remember 20 years ago when we started to start our uh, uh, charity with our own saving. After two years, we were still called by the IRAs to pay tax for the amount of our hard-earned money that we put into our charity, which was then newly established, but not an IPC. So we have to pay, you know, uh, double tax because after... Uh, we contributed the saving back to the society. We're still paying tax. Worse still, we are paying tax on the percentage of our last earning. Because at that time, we may be holding uh, average and above position, so we had the saving to start the charity. But once we started the charity with our saving, we, we do not have the capability to actually, not everyone had the capability to pay for the tax rate while we were still professional at our position before we, we retired to contribute to the society by not taking any more pay, just volunteer. And we have been doing that for 19 years. Okay. Okay, thank you. So, um, expansion of MediShield. Well, first of all, I must say uh, that we need more such wonderful people as Joyce in the community who are prepared to put in effort and energy. Um, if you do need some advice on how to become an IPC, I'm sure Lawrence sitting in front here will be able to give you good advice. But you should become an IPC, and if you become an IPC uh, or a charity, then I think you will benefit from either tax exemption for your organisation or tax exemption and or tax exemption for donations to the organisation. And I think uh, that the criteria are quite clear, and I think that's, those are fair criteria. But as I said, I think 
that we do need more people like Joyce in our society. If I can take marriage first, uh, you are quite correct. Uh, um, about one third of marriages which involve a Singaporean are marriages in which a Singaporean marries a non-Singaporean. So it's not actually one third of Singaporeans are marrying foreigners. It's actually uh, two thirds of Singaporeans are marrying Singaporeans and one third are marrying foreigners. So it's not uh, one third of Singaporeans are marrying foreigners, two thirds are marrying Singaporeans. Uh, sorry, that's not quite right. <laughs> you, you do the math. So it's, it's one third of marriages. Yeah, one third of marriages, but the two thirds of marriages are actually Singaporean and Singaporean. Okay? So if you are, if you are, most of those marriages have children and their children become Singapore citizens. So that's not an issue at all. But you're right, you can't choose who your parents are, but you can choose which citizenship you want to owe loyalty to. And as a small country, we find it important that people should decide. I mean, we're not the only country. Uh, different countries have different criteria for citizenship. Uh, in the United States, you can't be the president of the US if you were not born there. In Australia, you just recently had quite a kerfuffle. The deputy prime minister, my counterpart, I had just met him, he had to step down because he had dual citizenship. So politicians can't have dual citizenship. So I think there are different criteria in different countries. And my view is that for a small country like Singapore, we should make a commitment and a choice. Um, uh, Mr. Tambaya, Dr. Tambaya, excuse me, asked about non-catastrophic coverage. Uh, yes, of course, you can design um, insurance systems in many different ways, but there's no free lunch. In the end, one has to pay for it in one form or another. And one has to look not just at the inputs, but the outputs and the outcomes. So when you look at how much we're spending on education or healthcare and so on, you must look at what is the outcome. And actually, one of the remarkable things about Singapore is that we have been able to achieve high outcomes, even though we may be spending less as a percentage of GDP than many other countries on various things. So we should actually applaud ourselves for that. So very often, it's not how much money you spend, but how you spend the money. So we have high employment rates because we have workfare, and we have low unemployment rates because we don't have unemployment insurance or we don't have unemployment benefits. So we may be putting out money, but we put money to encourage people to work, not to subsidize people who don't. So how you spend the money is important. Now, when it comes to insurance, certainly you can cover non-catastrophic uh, items. But that means that what you pay for insurance has to go up. And if you keep your coverage at what really concerns and worries people, which is catastrophic insurance, then you can keep the cost of insurance very, very affordable and very low. That's one aspect. The other aspect is if you go for a full buffet, one price buffet, and eat all you want, that's what will happen. 
and your consequence is that your total healthcare costs will go up. But that may be something Dr. Tambaya is happy with because then you see the input has gone up. You're spending a lot more on healthcare. But has your outcome improved? Now let me give you some statistics. I asked for some numbers. So how much a 27-year-old would pay for health insurance in Singapore versus in the US? The typical US, uh, this is from the website, so one trusts everything that one reads on the internet, so it must be true. <laughs> in the US, a benchmark plan for a 27-year-old would cost um, $3,600 a year, or $1,700 after subsidies, US. So that's about $4,700 annually sing or 2002 after subsidies. And the standard plan also has deductibles and so on. So you can go and look it up and see what it is. In Singapore, under MediShield Life in, 20, in 2019, what does a 27-year-old pay for insurance? What do you think? $1,000? How many people think $500? How many people think it's less than $500? How many people think it's less than $300? It's $195 annually before subsidies and $156 annually after subsidies compared to what's paid in the US, which is $2,250 sing after subsidies. That's Big, big difference. So, I ask you to see whether what we're doing is appropriate and correct or not. We have time for a few more questions, maybe another round. But make it short this time. Any, any takers? Yes. Please just raise your voice if you can't, if I don't see you. Our Prof. Anwi. Please go ahead. I'm Anwi from NUS, and I'm interested in the topic today because I'm already 92. <laughs> so I, <laughs> coming from social work, I wonder if you would agree that in workfare there is a politically toxic element that we are forced to subsidize the wages paid by rich condominiums and rich shopping centers, underpaying their cleaners and workers. And that thereby, we, ha they, we have allowed this situation to force the government to subsidize a very wealthy element in the society, which ought to be paying much better wages that, and it's getting away with underpaying wages. 
I would love your comments. Well, first of all, Prof, it's a great delight to see you here today and still so sharp and active and still such a social activist. Um, well, I think the message is really out there for all those who are employing these people. And there are many of you here today. Please take heed of what <laughs> Professor Henry has said. What the government is doing with workfare is to help our workers who may not be able to uh, who may not be able to earn a very high salary to work and we help them to top up the various accounts in the CPF in order to help them to be able to save and to be able to provide for themselves and their families. And I think out of the many different systems that we have seen in the world, I think this is still um, a reasonably um, encouraging system because it does encourage people to stay active and take on employment and to have that self-respect that comes from employment. I think if a person works as a cleaner or some other job, it is also up to each of us to respect that person for the job that he does. And I think if we accord him or her that kind of respect, that is probably the most important thing that we can do. There's nothing wrong with doing an honest day's work. And I think that all Adesh should still hold true even in the future. Yes, Gamin? Thank you. you. Okay. Yeah. Uh, DPM, I'm very encouraged by um, many of your comments and also to see you looking so um, uh, fit and hearty. You're younger than me, by the way. Um, what I particularly want to ask you about is this twinning of jobs, which I think is an excellent idea. Um, and of course, in Singapore, we always do uh, allow the government to lead by example as well as suggestion. Uh, I think um, Professor Chan, I think, showed us a slide where uh, some professions, some jobs held their, or, or rather people over 65 held their own in some sectors of the labor force better than others. Uh, professionals, for example, uh, were quite well represented uh, over 65, but I, correct me if I'm wrong, uh, Professor Chan, but I noticed that legislators and policy makers um, didn't hold their own so well after 65, although of course our Prime Minister is over 65, I believe. So what I want to ask you is, we already of course have a senior minister, in the past minister mentor. Um, are you going to, in the civil service, in the government, allow for a larger representation of older people. Um, uh, I, I would find that very encouraging, especially if the population is older. We would want policymakers, legislators who can see the older generation's point of view as well. Perhaps you might have a ministry for aging as well as a ministry for youth and culture. Thank you. So, 
Are you going to stay on in the cabinet to represent Gamin and me? <laughs> it will take a few more. Yes, please. Um, thank you, um, DPM and uh, Chair. Um, I have uh, two questions. One of it is That's a Brema, right? Oh, yeah, yeah sorry, okay, Brema. Yeah. One of it is a follow-up from one of the participants' question and your response, uh, Deputy Prime Minister. I think when a Singaporean marries a non-Singaporean under the marriage cohort, the tendency by numbers also shows that quite a number of women who are lower educated struggle with getting some kind of stay, residence, citizenship for their husbands. And as they grow older, how are we going to deal with this? Because they come under a different medical package if they were to fall ill. So that is one part to that. And the other part is if I am a Singapore citizen and I marry a foreigner, shouldn't I then have some kind of equitability for my spouse? But the second question relates to a very good point uh, that you have brought up about employment and the private sector. I'm going back to the IPS survey on page 29, where it says that the majority of the respondents, 2,000 respondents, felt that there was discrimination against them as they grew older in finding a job. What kind of policy can we have? And perhaps isn't it time to think about anti-discrimination legislative process? Thank you. I think we can take both questions. Well, perhaps I'll take uh, Brema's uh, questions first. Not everything can be solved by legislation. And I think some of the most important things that need to be changed with uh, regard to the whole idea of ageing our mindsets. That's why I had my last slide. We have to stand some of these things on its head. Already, our attitudes have changed. When I joined the public service, the armed forces, the retirement age was 55. I should have retired eight years ago. Get me? I should have retired eight years ago already. And the retirement ages were 55, 40, 50, and 45 depending on what rank you were in the armed forces. Now, public service, I think, was 55. Uh, armed forces, there were specific reasons because of uh, physical fitness requirements and so on. But today, our retirement, our re-employment age is 67. So already our attitudes towards ageing and employment of older workers has shifted over the last couple of decades. And I think it can shift and it will shift more. So I would say that is a, a very important aspect of this. So not everything can be solved by legislation. Some of it can be. And even if you legislate, what do you legislate? So we were very careful to legislate for re-employment, which means that a company or organization needs to offer the opportunity for re-employment. But it could be the same job, but it could be a different job at a different pay. So in the Ministry of Education, for example, uh, I think MOE has successfully uh, re-employed many school principals 
Now, if I were a school principal, a younger school principal, I would be delighted to have a very senior uh, educator, maybe one who has been a principal, and say if I was in a primary school, I would say, you know, can you please help me make sure this primary six class, back to PSLE again, which is my, which are not terribly good at math, can you please help me to make sure that this primary six class passes math? And that's all I need you to do for me. And I think that's wonderful if we can achieve that and we can have that. So you don't need to employ that person and re-employ that person as a principal. But you could use that person's skills in a very, very meaningful way for both the students, the system, and the individual. Now, with asking about lower education cohort and so on, I mean, the, the general principle that we follow is that when we do bring in a new citizen to Singapore, we want to make sure that we are able, the family is able to take care of themselves. And that's an important principle. For those who are here on a family tie scheme, we actually um, uh, provide um, a lot of uh, leeway in that. But there are always some reasons why uh, specific issues and specific cases where this is not possible and there are some very specific reasons for that. So if there are, then let's deal with those as specific cases. But in general, spouses are able to get stay and if they want to, they're able to get PR and citizenship in general. Um, Gikming, uh, uh, asked about uh, job tuning and legislators and the Ministry of Aging. Now, I think it's important that as a country, we might grow older, but the leadership must not become aged as well. You need a certain vitality and energy to deal with the world. And even though I can still keep on running, I mean, I know that I'm not running in the same way that I was running five or ten years ago. There are a few more creaks, there are a few more aches. And you don't want a whole nation to be held hostage to the health of a cohort of people who are already senior and getting more and more senior with each passing year. So we don't want that to happen. So we need leadership renewal. But I take gaming's point that um, um, it would be useful to have some more senior members in the cabinet. And I would say that because of the continuity that we've had in our political system in Singapore, we are quite unique in that we've had former prime ministers sit in cabinet as senior ministers or mentor ministers, and that has been a great help to the younger ones of us at that time in the cabinet. And I hope that if we do have a transition in the future, that a new cabinet, a new prime minister, may see the usefulness and the benefit of such an arrangement as well. But that comes from continuity. I think I'll take one more question. Yes. Hi, Hi good afternoon. Um, 
I'm actually belonging, my name's Alvin, um, and I actually belong to the one-third category of Singaporeans who um, married a foreigner. Um, I'm happy to inform the audience, uh, my wife and daughter, my wife has recently received a permanent residency, my, and my daughter's become a Singapore citizen, so, woohoo, <laughs> Team Singapore. Uh, so anyway, my question is this. Um, Singapore is a country that prides itself as a smart nation that embraces failures and disruptive innovations. With that in mind, is it time that we can look to the government to come up with innovative policies and initiatives to boost, to boost our, our TFR? Thanks. <laughs> I think appropriate last question. <laughs> well, I'm glad to hear that, uh, Alvin, because uh, I think many families in Singapore have, are in the same situation as you are that they have people, members of their family who have spouses who were, born, were not born in Singapore and have come from other lands. In fact, I will lay you a bet, and we, we, we can do this test here as well. If I ask how many people were born in Singapore, how many people have had at least one parent not born in Singapore, and how many of us here today have at least one grandparent not born in Singapore, I think we will have most of the people in this house putting their hand up already by then. So we do have essentially a population which is still very, very immigrant in its outlook and its history. I myself, although I can trace my family here to five generations in Singapore, in practically every generation, we've had members of the family married in who are not born in Singapore. And I think it's a wonderful uh, sort of thing for Singapore to remain open. Smart nation and innovation. I'm glad that um, Alvin has such great confidence in the government. Um, but I should then um, perhaps throw the question back to you and say, well, crowdsourcing is the in thing now. <laughs> So if you can think of any good ideas on how we can improve our TFR, please send them in to me. Uh, our National Population Secretariat people are here, and we will, I promise you we will look at them seriously and we'll do what we can. But let me say a few things. We have done uh, baby bonuses. We have done many things, education and so on. And Josephine Teo, myself, over the last few years, we've looked at a few things which we think might well be important game changers and we hope will help to move the needle a little. One of them was housing. I think that Singaporeans are very fortunate. There's practically no other country in the world, certainly not in East Asia, where when a couple gets married, they actually have a new home to live in, an affordable new home to live in. We're talking about house prices just now. Uh, how, what is the price of a new HDB four-room flat? Now, how many of you think that it is over 500000 the price of a new HDB four-room flat? It's a knowledgeable audience. <laughs> how many of you think it's more than $400,000? A few. How many of you think that a new HDB flat is more than $300,000. Okay, 
you all are very shy. How many of you think that a new HDB flat is less than $300,000? Yes. So you know, a new HDB flat with government subsidies is about $235,000. So we are one of the few countries in the world where a young couple who gets married can have a home of their own very, very quickly and at a very affordable price. And so this is one of the important things, I think, which should help us to improve our TFR. And I hope it does. It makes a contribution. The other thing which we have looked at very carefully is childcare. And that's why MOE and uh, ECDA and uh, MCCY, MSF is moving very, very hard to have more childcare places. And in the last five years, we've increased the number of preschool places by 50,000. And many young couples today have, uh, want to have their children in childcare from earlier and earlier ages. Infant care from 18 months to you know, one year to two years onwards. And part of the reason is because our seniors are more active today. <laughs> they want to go on holidays, they're still at work, they don't want to be burdened, so to speak, with looking after their grandchildren every day. And so childcare is another area which we're working hard on. But crowdsourcing is the in thing. Please let me know if you have good ideas. It's a very knowledgeable audience, but I should tell you that um, in the surveys we have conducted, the majority of Singaporeans overestimate the price of a BTO by about $100,000. Uh, so, you know, they, most people will say three hundred to 400000 when in fact it is two hundred to 300000 uh, depending on the location. Um, to, speaking of crowdsourcing, uh, <laughs> I, yeah, depending on the look, the, the question was, which is the cheapest? Uh, <laughs> yeah, it depends. <laughs> um, I, speaking of crowdsourcing, I have one possible idea. I don't know whether uh, DPM wants to respond to it. You actually look at the TFR of married couples, they do replace themselves in Singapore. The trouble is our people are not getting married, and they're also very moral so they don't have children out of wedlock. So, <laughs> so, so instead of baby bonuses, we should have marriage bonuses. Um, actually, we do. We, you get an HDB flat. I mean, otherwise, you, you know, if you're not married, you don't get an HDB flat. Uh, but beside that, is there some way in which we can get our people, or young people, married? Preferably only once. But, uh, <laughs> <laughs> Um, anyway, thank you very much, DPM. Um, you, you want Heng Chi has got an idea. <laughs> this young lady here has a, an idea to contribute. <laughs> no, actually, it was uh, Janadas who started it because you talked of surrogacy. Yeah. Recently, there was a case yeah. where a lawyer, a male lawyer, was not allowed to adopt a child, bring back a child that he fathered through surrogacy. In a country where we are so challenged for babies, I think there are lots of women in their 40s, single, never got married, who may want to have children or adopt children. How will the society look on it if they decided 
to, through surrogacy, have a child? And what will be the attitude of the government? I know there are religious, uh, you know, uh, reactions to this, but you ask for crowdsourcing of ideas, is there an idea? <laughs> Uh, you want to respond? <laughs> well, the whole subject of adoption is, I mean, we are okay with adoption. But the whole subject of adoption has to be treated very carefully, particularly when it's international adoption. Now, you will have, Heng Chi and others here in this room will have heard of a celebrated case of an Australian couple who had surrogate children in Thailand, twins. They decided to take one of the twins, but not the other, because the other twin was a special needs child. Now, you have to ask yourself about the ethics of surrogacy, especially paid surrogacy, and the kinds of choices you know, the, the very difficult ethical choices around surrogacy, especially paid surrogacy. Now, that's why we have not uh, moved on surrogacy in Singapore, especially international surrogacy, because of these very sensitive and delicate ethical issues. And I think this is something which we want to take very, very carefully and very, very slowly. So this is one case. There was another case, also unfortunately in Thailand, which has now tightened up their surrogacy rules, paid surrogacy rules, of a young man who was the son of a billionaire, and he was found to have surrogately fathered something like 16 or 17 children. And there was a picture in the newspapers with ladies carrying about 16, 17 babies. And he was reportedly to have said that his aim was to have 1,000 surrogate babies. <laughs> now again, I mean, so one has to deal with these issues that new methods, new technology brings forth. These are important and serious ethical issues which one has to deal with. And I don't think we should rush headlong into them. The position which we have in Singapore is, I think, a good position in that almost all children in Singapore are born in wedlock with fathers and mothers. And that gives society a certain stability and a certain framework in which we bring up children. I think those societies which have undergone very, very rapid social and familial transitions have also encountered some serious challenges. We don't know who is right, we don't know who is wrong, but I think this is one of those issues which I think a little prudence is probably the better path. Thank you, DPM. Um, I just remembered that the last time you came to a Singapore Perspectives conference was about three, four years ago. 
So may I take it that we will be able to invite you again three to four years from now? <laughs> Thank you very much. <laughs>